listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Uh, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, you are touching your face. Get your fingers out of your face. Stop touching your face. Oh my goodness, now we have moved into this where people are policing each other for where their digits go on their face. This amid growing concerns about hoarding. Have you heard this? Australia now moving to ban the stockpiling of toilet paper. And we've had this here, too. Store shelves, empty, obviously no hand sanitizer. But the toilet paper? This is what it's come to? Toilet paper? I'm just looking up slang words for toilet paper. Because that's what I do. Uh, This, according to Urban Thesaurus, you've got your certificate of deposit, you got your dingleberry, your poop eraser, your bill of rights, your moon tape, your poop mitten, your poop ticket, your clitty litter. That one might have gone too far. Nevertheless, all of it, all of it is concerning. And then you see what happened with the Bank of Canada today. I mean, I'm not getting all chicken little on you here, but is the sky falling? A half point rate cut? Juice in the market? Is this what we need? Now, did the bank have any choice after the Fed surprise cut yesterday? Let's get more on this. The Bank of Canada today describing COVID-19 as, quote, a material negative shock to the Canadian and global outlooks. Disrupting earlier signs that the global economy was stabilizing. What does it mean? Lawrence Booth, professor of finance at Rotman and CIT chair, joins me on the line. Lawrence, how are you feeling? Well, I'm pretty fine. I'm healthy. Uh, I can uh, sneeze on people without any problem. Please don't sneeze on anyone. Please don't don't try and shake my hand. Lawrence, keep your hands... Are you touching your face, Lawrence? No, I'm not. Excellent. Did the uh, Bank of Canada have any choice but to go a half point? Pretty much everybody figured it would be a quarter point cut today. How much of a surprise is a half point? It's a little bit of a surprise. Um, they, as you say, they uh, they follow the United States uh, to some extent, not always. Um, we've had periods when uh, the overnight rate has been significantly different uh, from that in the United States. Uh, but it's a case of the uh, the old phrase, don't you stand there, do something. Uh, so uh, they had to react in the face of the, uh, the things you've been talking about, people panicking and uh, buying toilet paper and... Uh, Canceling conferences and canceling holidays, uh, people are reacting to this. How does a, a half-point cut in the rate actually put money back into the system and help businesses that are going to be hurt in the short term? For businesses, it's not going to make much difference. Uh, obviously, if you've got a mortgage, then uh, essentially what's going to happen is that when you renew, you're going to get uh, a break of 4 or 5% uh, cut in your monthly payments. So uh, we'll put cash into the hands of uh, people who are borrowing. On the other hand, uh, savers are going to lose that money because it's uh, basically uh, some people gain, some people lose. But uh, for businesses, it's not going to affect the fact that the supply chain is disrupted, the fact that people are canceling conferences, people are canceling trips, people are uh, basically taking preventive measures. And a minor cut in the uh, short-term interest rates is not going to affect that behavioral response. The, the bank indicating that there is likely another cut to come, but is this the only the beginning of some kind of financial stimulus? You're going to have to see governments all around the world. I know we have seen in some countries already massive stimulus packages to try and ward off the economic impacts of COVID-19. 
Well, the problem is that we've got negative interest rates on, uh, I think it's about $15 trillion worth of debt, primarily European at the moment. Uh, going more negative isn't going to provide that stimulus. Uh, interest rates uh, work in an asymmetric uh, fashion. Pushing up interest rates slow down uh, spending. Cutting interest rates doesn't really stimulate uh, uh, spending because when you cut interest rates, it's because the situation is quite dire or people think that it's quite dire. And that basic behavioral uh, attitude isn't going to change because of its uh, cutting short-term interest rates. Lawrence Booth. They're still going to be storing toilet rolls uh, (laughs) and rushing Costco, regardless of what the Bank of Canada does. (laughs) Lawrence, uh, I, you probably have to head to the Costco right now. I'm I'm sure to stock up. Uh, I I I think you said last week I'm pretty uh, calm about these things, and I'm still calm about things. This is a, a temporary phenomenon. If we look back uh, in the economic statistics, we can't see SARS, we can't see MERS, we can't see H1N1. These are really short-term phenomena that uh, will go away as uh, this this disease goes away. Lawrence Booth, Professor of Finance at Rotman and CIT Chair. Great to have you on the program. Always appreciate how calm you are. Thanks, Lawrence. My pleasure. Bye. Moving to provincial politics, we have news from the Finance Minister, Ontario's Finance Minister, revealing this morning the budget will come down on March the 25th. And interestingly, it will not happen at Queen's Park in the McDonald Block, where it normally happens. That's where you have what's known as the lockup where all the interested parties and journalists go into an area, a secure area, and you get to read the budget for hours and hours before it's actually tabled and made public. That way you can study the document, but yet you can't disseminate the information widely because it could have an impact on the market. There might be wins, winners and losers. Well, it, it's not actually happening at the McDonald Block this year. It is going to happen at the Metro uh, Convention Center, which is an interesting change. That's because of renovations to McDonald Block. But I want to uh, play for you Rod Phillips here. This is the Finance Minister of Ontario, newly installed, as you might remember, after Vic Fidelli was shuffled out of the position of Finance Minister. He says the March 25th document will keep Ontario on track to balance the books by 2023. It's prudent, measured, and deliberate. We made a conscious choice to balance the books by 2023 so that we could also make smart investments in critical items of public service, items like health care, education, and infrastructure, like transit and roads. That is Ontario's Finance Minister Rod Phillips, who will deliver his first budget in March on the 25th. And when you hear the date 2023, keep in mind that the next provincial election is 2022. So the government will not be balancing the books prior to the next election. In question period today, we have more questions about the education file and what happened late yesterday afternoon. I want to take you through a little bit about what has happened and what is the strategy behind it. Stephen Lecce, late the yesterday afternoon, had a press conference where he rolled back a number of proposals that have been sticking points for the uh, teacher unions, including class sizes and also mandatory e-learning. Yeah, I want to play this for you from Doug Ford in question period. And is this factual? We aren't going to roll over like uh, we've seen over the last 15 years. <laughs> I got it wrong. That's actually Monday. Let's hit that one. Can you give me that one more one more time? I Just hang on for a second because I just set this up. 
because I got, I got a little backwards here. But this is what I want to play. This is what he said Monday when asked about what you're going to do about the teachers. What are you going to do about it? This is Monday, Doug Ford. We aren't going to roll over like uh, we've seen over the last 15 years. And Tuesday afternoon, roll over Beethoven. Tuesday afternoon, all of a sudden, a drawback on a number of these sticking points. So now what does that all mean? Here is Harvey Bischoff, who is the head of the uh, high school teachers union, the uh, public, OSSTF. So he's actually at a board meeting, or not a board meeting, but actually uh, at the hotel where both sides are supposed to be talking about, well, can we get together and bargain or not? I mean, is there any way forward? And he discovers that uh, that Stephen Lecce is going to hold a press conference at Queen's Park this yesterday afternoon. So he books it down there to discover that Stephen Lecce stands in front of the you know the media and in front of the province uh, at the Queen's Park press studio and says what I just said: whether we're going to we're going to change in terms of what our demands are on class sizes, and we are also going to change on mandatory e-learning, allow parents to decide whether or not their kids will participate in e-learning. Now, here's what Harvey Bischoff had to say outside that media studio in reaction. We started Sunday night. We were still in active discussions, and this minister chose to roll a hand grenade out on the table again and blow things up. Boom. Boom goes the dynamite. That, to me, you know, that to me doesn't sound like light at the end of the tunnel. And indeed, last night we found out that OSSTF and the province have no negotiation date. So now they're not going to actually talk. So we have this proposal made in a media studio by the Minister of Education, but not apparently at the table. And the unions are saying, well, what is this all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's about it's an attempt to backfoot the union and say, oh, these are your big issues? We'll take those off the table. Now go ahead and tell us it's not about the money. Go ahead, try. Go ahead and try to tell us it's not about the money anymore. And then this is this was my big wind-up before that I whiffed at. Here is the premier in the house today playing a little fast and loose with some facts. We put a great deal in front of them, and we'll see which way they go. Minister Lecce confirmed the major moves we've made at the table. Not at the massive, table. massive moves to, again, get the kids back into the classroom. Not at the table. Not at, the, not at the bargaining table. Or, wait a minute, this is where we get down into the weeds and we get weird. Because one of the teacher unions said yesterday, we have not heard anything about this class size 23 to 1 that the province is proposing. We haven't heard a thing about it. No, what you're talking about. Why is the minister in there just saying that in front of the TV cameras instead of tell, telling us? And then, <laughs> here's Stephen Lecce today, in the house, going all Eugene McCarthy, waving a paper around, saying, oh, look what I got here. In fact, yesterday when one of the teacher union presidents was posed the question, did you know about the classroom size uh, reduction that the government is proposing? They asserted no. Mr. Speaker, I have confirmed, and the media now have access to letters from February 24th, where it says, without reservation, class sizes, excluding online learning, shall, be, shall not exceed 23, Speaker. What you see there is him waving a paper around. Peace in our time. 
Uh, no, the McCarthy thing is not fair because McCarthy, you know, famously when he held up his list, it, there was actually nothing on it. I'm, I'm told that this is a legitimate letter that has been put to the press gallery. Right now I'm watching uh, Stephen Lecce speaking after question period, answering questions from reporters. This is going to develop throughout the day. But again, I want to just reiterate what the strategy is here. This, the strategy here is the core thing that the government knows it can't back down on is wages, on the 1%, partly because it has legislation. It actually passed a law that said public sector employees can't make more than 1% wage increase. Now, there is a loophole in there that the minister could go to the president of the Treasury Board and say, ah, extenuating circumstances, I need you to bump it up a little bit. But that's obviously the government, that is the thing that the government doesn't want to back down on. So what we have now is I'm saying, you know, this is kind of, again, this fight for hearts and minds of you, the parent, because the government is saying, oh, well, the union said it was these two issues that was the big deal. So now we're not going to do those two things anymore. How come we don't have a deal? And yet we're not even at the bargaining table. So we don't have a deal. And there's no deal on site. Keep all of that in mind. Crime stories have a way of sometimes bringing a community together, of trying to figure out what possibly had gone wrong in their community that something terrible would happen. And often there's a mystery involved, a search for truth, a search for suspects, and all of it is fascinating and can be heard on one of the number one podcasts in Canada, Crime Beat. And Crime Beat is now premiering as a TV show on Global, beginning on March the 7th at 7 p.m., and it starts stars host Nancy Hickst. She's spent the last year and two seasons taking listeners on a deep dive into some of the most high-profile cases that she's covered in her 20 years as a crime reporter for Global News in Calgary. Nancy joins me in studio. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, welcome and congratulations on the podcast and especially congratulations on the TV show. Well, thank you so much. Today is the first anniversary. We released our very first episode one year ago today. So it's kind of a big day and it's the first day that I ever got to meet my team, my uh, producer and audio master in person. So it's a pretty exciting day for me. What does the TV version hold, especially this weekend on March 7th at 7? You know, the goal of of the show is the same as it's always been for the podcast, and that's always to, you know, really shine a light in dark places. You know, we cover some really horrific crimes uh, on the crime beat, and, you know, it's always been so important to me to be able to give victims a voice, to give the voiceless a voice, and to share the impact on those families. In doing my job and in covering these stories, I get to know these families really well. And in a typical television news story, you know, you have two minutes to condense that information down and try to get across all of the information in a story. So with the podcast and again with the show, we want to give you that behind the scenes perspective, all of the different things that uh, we do to bring people these stories and bring people you know, the impact of these crimes on a regular basis, whether it's a door knock or sitting down with a victim's family or, yeah, knocking on a a murderer's door, just holding people accountable. I want to play for you. This is the trailer for Crime Beat. Mika Jordan loved to sing and dance. This is pot gonna end well. How little girl who'd been rushed to the children's hospital last night has died of her injuries. She had bruising uh, 
throughout her body. How did it ever get to that? Um, there is no way to explain it. That is the trailer for Crime Beat, which debuts this weekend, and each episode takes you deep inside a particular case. Why was this one important for you? You know, I, I can picture the exact moment that I heard on the scanner, the police scanner, that um, a little girl was really badly injured and had been rushed to hospital. I remember knocking on the neighbor's doors and her uh, neighbor telling me that um, he'd seen the little girl and he'd seen bruises on her before, and it quickly... Uh, spiraled and she died in hospital a short time later and it became a homicide investigation and it became very clear very soon that the simple explanation that the parents, it was the father and stepmother that they gave because they were taking care of her at the time. This was a split family. Um, It became very clear their explanation of a fall down the stairs did not match the injuries. So I take you through this case and this this case, um, it's a, it was a roller coaster ride for the mother and stepfather who were supposed to have custody of her that weekend. But instead, she was kept um, at the at the other half of her family's place. So I take you through the investigation and police had to do some Uh, really unique investigative work to be able to solve this case, and I take you through it step by step. I'm speaking with Nancy Hickst, who is Global News Calgary's uh, crime reporter, and on March the 14th, the second episode features a case that I covered 20 years ago, the murder of Farah Khan, a five-year-old girl, and much in the same way, I take you through exactly how police solved that case, And that was back when I was crime reporter for Global News in Toronto. And after I left that position, Catherine McDonald stepped into the position and is the crime reporter. And she also has an episode as part of Crime Beat and joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Let's just talk for a moment here, all three of us having done this job before. What's What's the most important thing about being a crime reporter in your mind when you set out in the morning uh, to begin your day and you're covering something that could be just horrible? You know, for me, I think it's you're always trying to get to the truth. And and that means maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. Maybe you're knocking on that door that nobody else wants to. You're asking the questions that other people don't necessarily want to or that shy away from. Um, But I always try to reach out to the families of the victims because I think that that's so important. You know, it's one thing for you to share details of a crime, but if you don't explain the impact and and make it resonate with the people who you're sharing that story with, I think you're losing a lot. And, And I know I've seen your work, I've seen Catherine's work, and I know that we all share that. Catherine? Well, every sad case that I cover, there's always a backstory. And sometimes uh, there can be facts that are erroneous. And I know that I want to make sure that we get the facts right from the beginning so we don't have to make a correction and or and or lead the public down uh, the wrong street. I mean, we do a lot of cases that don't get solved right away. And sometimes we can't answer the questions right away. And we, we have to leave some of these the unknowns unknown until uh, until investigation until investigators get more answers and that's hard a lot of people want to know right away what happened and i think it's easy to jump to conclusions and and you have to be really careful not to try and solve the case before the police have figured out and sometimes the cases are you know arrests are made and it goes to trial and there are acquittals 
And those cases remain open. Like one of the two stories that I, I will be featuring on, on Crime Beat is the, uh, the murder of Jordan Manners, which really uh, affected many people in the city. It was uh, 2007. It was a 15-year-old boy who was shot to death inside his high school. He was in grade nine. And um, I, I revisit this story. I have revisited this story over the years with uh, the mother. And there, this went to two trials, and there was an acquittal, and she's never found justice. And, you know, all these years later, we still wait for answers, and we can't answer what happened to Jordan. I have a qu- just a quick question before we we wrap up here, and, and that is, I think all three of us have probably run into this in our reporting, where you know something before the police want you to know, to release it, or police ask you not to put something out in the Farah Khan case. They asked Lampinia not to publish the photo of the little girl when we discovered her identity, and one organization went ahead and did that. So I'm just wondering, Nancy, I'll start with you. How do you handle that kind of request from police? You know, there's a lot of ethical discussions that happen behind the scenes. You know, we're lucky with Global News. We have an amazing, you know, editorial boss, Chris Bassett. If he's listening, he should know that he he's he was my boss before he was the overall manager of editorial standards. And these are discussions that we have a lot of the times. You have to balance out, is this information that the public needs? Is this going to mean that we're the ones informing the public? a family that they lost a loved one because you don't want to be the one who is delivering that news. It, there has to be that balance. So for sure, we have this discussion almost on a daily basis, um, trying to come up with that, uh, that balance. And, you know, there's, there's certain topics where it's safe to push the envelope when you're dealing with though, you know, releasing photos that maybe, maybe that aunt or the sister or the brother, maybe they don't know that they've lost their loved one. Like, I, I, I do not think that that's the media's role to identify somebody like that. So uh, you have to be very respectful of that. And, um, you know, these are important discussions to have. And we, at Global News, I think we take a lot of pride in that. Catherine, quickly, your, your take on that? You don't need to break a story when it comes to crime reporting. You don't need to be first. You need to be right, and you need to be mindful of the investigation. Uh, you don't, you know. The other day, we ran into a, an issue on on Global where we got some security video um, that showed the victim of a homicide being dumped out of a car 10 minutes before he was found by police. And, you know, we got some pushback from police after we aired it, another station aired it. Uh, One of the media people said to us that this could compromise the investigation. And when I spoke to the head of homicide, he said, actually, no, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, I, we were not going to, she actually wrote me and said, next time you uh, air a video, why don't you call police first? And that's not our role. We don't work in concert with police. That being said, if we thought it was violent or gory or, uh, you know, uh, if, if, if it did something to compromise the investigation, I, I know after 20 years in Toronto, I, I wouldn't have put that on air. Um, they did ask us to blur the, the video that showed the victim, which honestly I didn't know it was the victim, even looking at it um, many times. And, and the, the homicide detective in charge, his, his fear was what if the family sees that? For them it might be difficult. So we did blur it. So we have those kind of ethical issues. Um, but editorially, we, we do, uh, you know, we, we are separate from the police when it comes to what we air. Catherine McDonald is Global Toronto's crime specialist. Nancy Hickst is the crime specialist for Global News in Calgary. She hosts Crime Beat, beginning March 7th at 7 p.m. Please tune in. Nancy, great to see you. Great to have you you here. Catherine, thanks for being on the program. Thank you. Pleasure.
Hey, I want to update you on a developing situation that's just coming into our newsroom from Kingston, Ontario. Kingston, Ontario police say they have several officers on scene on Bath Road in the city's west end after a train derailed Wednesday morning. Police are currently evacuating certain buildings nearby. One of the cars on the train may be leaking. Police advising motorists to stay away from the area and those that live nearby to stay inside their homes, at least for the time being. The train, which seems to be a freight train, went off the tracks sometime just before noon today. That is from Kingston, Ontario. That is developing developing news situation, and we will keep you on top of that. In other news, are you touching your face? Do not touch your face. And but and I also include in this list, people, the president of the United States. And I haven't touched my face in weeks. In weeks, Mr. President, I miss it. Pardon? I miss it. You, you've, you miss your own face? I miss it. All right. He hasn't touched his face in weeks, folks. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg has ended his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. And he has endorsed former Vice President Joe Biden. All of this following Super Tuesday last night. It's a stunning collapse for the former New York City mayor, who spent more than $500 million of his own money. $500 million. You know, he got a couple of delegates from Samoa. That's what he got. That's what he got for his trouble. So, Bloomberg is out. And that means that former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden is now the clear frontrunner in terms of the anybody but Bernie ticket. So can Joe Biden now ride this momentum? And it's clear even Elizabeth Warren is saying that she's going to take some time to reassess her path forward, which is when you get a wobble like that, that kind of announcement, that means that she's out shortly. It's just a question of how long or where her support might go. Would it go to Bernie? Would it go to Joe? But Biden himself is now on track Can he beat Bernie Sanders? Well, Chief Political Analyst Matthew Dowd says that the momentum for Biden now is simply monumental. We always talk about Bill Clinton's comeback, the comeback kid in in 1992 when he finished second. This so far exceeds that. I've never seen a political comeback like this in my life. It's a bit like the Boston Red Sox being down three games to O because Biden lost the first three aces, being down one run in the ninth inning and coming back and beating the New York Yankees. He is not the comeback kid. He's Lazarus. Lazarus. You know what I miss? I miss touching my face. And I haven't touched my face in weeks. In weeks. Mr. President, I miss it. I miss it. All right, stay with us. When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio Program, I will take you all around the world, the very latest on COVID-19, plus our pollster extraordinaire, Daryl Bricker, joins me to talk about shifting attitudes about COVID-19. All this of This is not a time for fear. <laughs> Dr. Gabrasis, I appreciate you being with us as always. Stay with us. Welcome back to the program. Please stop touching your face. I can't feel my face, and I love it. 
I believe. And I haven't touched my face in weeks. <laughs> in weeks. Trump just this morning saying that he misses touching his face. All right, let's get you the COVID-19 update. As always, Dr. Tedros uh, is with us to keep us updated and make sure that we do not succumb to fear. Italian media say the Italian government has ordered schools nationwide to close for the next two weeks to limit the spread of coronavirus. The country's education minister, that final decision on a closure has not yet been confirmed. Keep in mind that the first positive test was registered in northern Lombardy on February 19th. Since then, more than 2,500 people in Italy have tested positive and 79 have died. Lithuania has canceled most of the indoor events planned for the 30th anniversary of its independence from the Soviet Union because of coronavirus. Facebook is giving the World Health Organization free advertising to help fight all of the misinformation circulating online about COVID-19. Mark Zuckerberg says the company is working with national health ministries and global organizations to spread timely and accurate information. The Louvre has opened again today after employees worried about catching the new coronavirus agreed to work. The museum had been shut down because employees thought that they were simply at too high of a risk considering the number of people that come through there each and every day. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is urging Israelis to stop shaking hands suggesting instead they adopt the Indian greeting of Namaste instead. And at a press conference today, announcing new steps to deal with the virus, Netanyahu pressed his hands together in a prayer position and bowed as he made that suggestion, stressing the need for personal hygiene. And now James Bond is involved. Even James Bond is on the run from COVID-19. No Time to Die will be postponed until November. According to the James Bond sequel's backers, the film was originally supposed to be released internationally on April 2nd in the United States and on April 10th. However, the spread of coronavirus has led to closures of theaters in major markets in Italy, South Korea, China, and Japan, and that could have been a major blow to No Time to Die, which cost more than $200 million to produce. Now is not a time for fear, unless you're James Bond, and then run. Just, you know. This is not a time for fear. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to run. So all of that brings us to where we are now with a new poll conducted across 10 large countries on February 28th and 29th showing that there is a significant increase now in the number of people who believe COVID-19 will have a personal financial impact on them. And that compares to a poll conducted earlier in February. This polling done by Ipsos and the head of Ipsos Daryl Bricker is on the line. Daryl, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. You can just call me Q in the uh, James Bond thing because I'm going to bring a little data here. You know, you have all the gadgets here. This is what you have. have all the gadgets, yes. All right. Uh, so more and more people think that this is going to hurt their bottom line, their personal pocketbook. 
Uh, and well, and the proof is in what they're seeing on the news every day. So, and in, in uh, the greatest fluctuation we've seen in the stock market, the Dow Jones, at least since uh, since the, the financial meltdown in 2008, and people are paying attention. These are kind of confirmations of, of what they fear, right? The things that, that people worry about. So in Canada, when we did this uh, a couple of weeks ago, the same poll and asked the same question, what's going to be the impact on your per, uh, personal financial situation? About 17% thought that there would be some sort of an impact. That number's moved up 20 points in two weeks to 37 that seems a significant jump, but yet we've also seen a significant change in the story in that time. Yeah, we have. And, and it's, what's happening with it is it's, uh, uh, it's interesting when you compare it to things like, for example, uh, the impact on the country, people actually think it's going to be lower than their personal financial impact. And particularly on their own personal situation, like them individually, them being infected, still a real low number in Canada. It's, it's, it's gone up. Uh, twice. It's gone up from 4 to 8, but it's still only 8%. But 37 is a pretty big number. So the, the impact of the virus is not just a health impact. It's also an impact on people's sense of financial well-being. And then when you have the, something like the Bank of Canada with a major slash today following the uh, Fed in the United States doing the same thing, a half-point cut, you know, obviously the, the bankers, the central bankers, believe that this kind of easement and this kind of cash into the system is required, but it sort of reinforces, does it not, Daryl, that we are in a bit of a pickle? Well, that's that's what the data is showing us right now, That uh, in particular, because what was really happening at the time we were doing this poll worldwide was, uh, was the, all of the major fluctuations in the stock market. So people obviously... Uh, particularly in places where the uh, where the virus is not uh, specifically have causing big uh, uh, healthcare disruptions like Canada, uh, the, it's the financial part that's uh, that's uh, it's a, a problem. And when these things happen to inspire confidence, sometimes, uh, and for example, the the Bank of Canada doing what it did, sometimes it actually creates the opposite kind of a situation. Now, over time, what it may lead to is people seeing things stabilizing, and it, it you know was likely necessary, but in the short term, it's one more signal that people should be worried. I, and and this thing, when I when I saw the visuals that came from the TTC and Metrolinx yesterday, Metrolinx and TTC both putting out separate pieces of video showing, you know, people in hazmat suits wiping down transit cars and spraying things, and I, I know that's designed to make everybody feel better, but also, it, it I think it's all, uh, at another way, it also increases the concern that people have. Yeah, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? I mean, if you do nothing, uh, then you're just relying on random things to uh, inform the public. But if you if you do something, sometimes what it does is it, uh, it, it inspires a certain amount of fear. But hopefully what it does in this circumstance is also uh, convince people that they should be changing some of their own habits, like doing things like washing their hands or uh, you know being careful about how they cough and that kind of thing. So uh, it, it's really interesting how profoundly this has impacted the world in such a short period of time on so many different levels. Uh, You work in an office building, you uh, are in charge of a corporation, and many of your members travel as part of that. Have you issued any kind of travel restrictions at Ipsos? Yes, we have. So, no, none at all? uh, Everybody working from home? Uh, no, we have some specific uh, specific prudent limitations, uh, particularly on things like global travel. You know, people, and, and especially on people traveling to um, uh, to places that are at risk. But yeah, I, I, I think our expectation, I'm sure, the same at Chorus and Global, is that people will be behaving prudently and taking what's going on into account, and that's what we're asking our employees to do as well.
How about shaking hands? Are you doing the, the Wuhan shake? There where you do the toe uh, tap? The elbow, bump, the elbow bumps. I've seen the foot That's, kicks. Yeah, the foot, yeah. Got, and now you've talked about adopting namaste. Yeah. A very very yoga-like, very zen-like. Uh, that might be the way I go. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, I think things like hand shaking will become uh, a bit of a problem. In places like France, you know, the, or Italy, the, the, uh, uh, the introductory kissing. I mean, I, I think it's probably going to be challenged uh, going forward as well. I mentioned in uh, the, the beginning of the segment here that there was no confirmation of that uh, nationwide closing of schools, but Reuters, or pardon me, Bloomberg now has just released that Italy has indeed announced a nationwide closing of all schools until March 15th. And that brings me to this, Daryl. I ask pretty much all of my guests this. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know I am planning a trip to southern Switzerland to go snowboarding at the end of March. March the 20th is when I leave. I'm asking everyone, what do you think the odds are of me actually being able to go on that trip? Uh, If things continue, I would say reducing every day. Okay. Thank you. Banff is a lovely place. <laughs> Check it out. Jasper's amazing. Yes, lovely. It's good snow. Whistler, Whistler has everything that that southern Switzerland has. I mean, you'll be very, very happy to go to any of those places. But yeah, I mean, right now, I, uh, it was funny. Uh, one of my colleagues at Ipsos uh, was traveling uh, a couple of days ago from London to Milan and uh, sent, sent me a picture of her plane. She was the only person on it. Uh, yeah. so this, is, this is not trivial. No, it, it, it isn't at all. all right, Daryl Bricker, thank you so much. Daryl Bricker with Ipsos, appreciate your perspective. Thanks, Alan. Well, so the percentages are going down each and every day in terms of Switzerland. We had a family meeting. We had a family uh, uh, chat uh, you know, on the speakerphone last night to talk about it, and we're still going. We're still, and we still think we are going to Switzerland on March the 20th. However, and you heard this on the radio program yesterday, it may not be up to us. Just because you want to go, just because there may not be a travel restriction to wherever it is that you're off to. The fact of the matter is, as you heard Daryl talk about, and that picture making the rounds yesterday of his colleague on that flight to Milan that was absolutely empty, is that airlines are just simply going to cancel flights. They're just going to say, well, nobody's going anywhere. It's not like we're, you know... We're not flying to Wuhan, obviously. That's been canceled for a long time. But now, flights to other major destinations, there is such a lack of demand that we're just going to park the planes. And that's very much a possibility. Also a possibility are more widespread bans on people getting together in large groups. And it's, it's possible we're going to see more of that. We're going to see schools closing, possibly. And at this point, we still have very low infection rate, no community transfer here in Ontario, even though our numbers have been going up. No new numbers to report today, by the way. We stay at where we were, which is 20, if I have my numbers correctly. Correct, I believe. Uh, At 29, I believe, uh, nationwide. Uh, 30 now, I believe. We're at 30. So... Even though the numbers are not going up, it is still very much possible that we could see the numbers go up and we could see restrictions, and all of that is yet to unfold in the days and weeks ahead. So keep it here on the Alan Carter Radio Program, not only for updates on my snowboarding trip, which I know you're fascinated about, but also about what's going on with COVID-19, not only in Toronto, on Ontario, on Canada, but around the world.